good afternoon. Uh, I'm Brian Cook. Uh, you're listening to Philosophy Can Ruin Your Life. Uh, I have with me in the studio today Dr. Mark Kelly. Um, Mark is a senior lecturer and uh, future fellow at the West, at Western Sydney University. Um, he's written um, extensively on the works of Michel Foucault. Um, his books include um, The Political Philosophy of Michel Foucault, um, uh, Foucault's The Will to Knowledge, uh, first volume of the history of sexuality, and more recently um, uh, published by Verso. Um, no, by Zero Books. <laughs> my, my apologies, by Zero Books, um, by, by Political Imperialism. Uh, uh, Dr. Kelly, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brian. Okay. Um, Mark, I'm going to ask you the question that I always ask people, and, and that is uh, Mark, tell me, how did philosophy ruin your life? Well, I mean, they... I guess philosophy didn't ruin my life, um, Great. <laughs> but uh, that's not to, to say anything particularly positive about philosophy. Mm -hmm. What I want to say rather is that my life was already ruined, and <laughs> it was through the ruination of my life that I encountered philosophy as the expression, let's say, of that ruination. So um, I was thinking about this before, that really the, my interest in philosophy comes from uh, being a, you know, an introverted teenager who mm. retreated Mm -hmm. inside himself and tried to find consolation in ideas and indeed um, megalomaniacally uh, to, to seek to remedy the problems of the world From within through ideas. Head. Yes, yes. And uh, I think that's you know a, a pretty common urge actually for, for what we call philosophers today in, in our society. I would agree, yeah. And um, But it's one that I've Departed from, which means, uh, unfortunately, I'm now in the position of actually seeing that as a futile effort that I wasted my time on, and <laughs> just rejoicing in it. Yeah, that you, yeah, that your life wasn't ruined because you you got out in in time, right? And realised what no, was wrong I, with. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not one to really believe in in redemption in that way, Brian. I mean, sure, I, yeah, but uh, we'll, we'll know, talk about to that. some extent, perhaps. <laughs> All right. Um. So, Mark, uh, perhaps on this on this, uh, can you tell me about your. Uh, first encounter with the, with the works of, of Michel Foucault. So, I mean, whatever your uh, position towards philosophy and, and e e even an, to the extent that you have an anti-philosophical position, I think Foucault, the encounter with Foucault was obviously a decisive moment in your intellectual career and as far as I can tell, still um, plays an incredibly important role in the way you, you think about things anti-philosophically or philosophically. You know. Yeah, now that's... That's very right. And perhaps we need to get onto this question of philosophy and anti-philosophy in a sure. minute. But as far as as far as Foucault goes, it basically, it, it happened like this. Um, I did my undergraduate degree in philosophy in the UK, and and you know, I imagine this podcast. I mean, I guess it's global, but mostly it'll be listened to by Australians. I mean, mm. the the um, British university system still is one where most people study a single subject for the entire three years of their bachelor's degree. And that, that was the case for me. I mean, actually, I started studying philosophy and politics. It was a mixed degree, which would be unusual, but I spent the, the serious second and third years of my degree just doing nothing but philosophy. Right, I didn't know that, yeah. Uh, and, um, but in, again, because, because that's the case, uh, most of the curriculum in British philosophy departments is absolutely determined. You don't just take electives. You mm -hmm. follow a whole curriculum, which took us, amongst other things, through the history of philosophy. Yes. I also did a lot of contemporary analytic stuff. So yes. This. So what that meant was that uh, someone like Foucault, who uh, of course um, died in 1984, and by the time I, I encountered him, he'd been dead for 15 years, yes. but that meant he was literally the very last thing they told us huh. about 
uh, in the last three weeks of my entire undergraduate degree. And um, I heard rumors about him before that, mainly from people in other disciplines. Right, yes. Right? Uh, who would, you know, but, or people who were kind of, you know, on the avant-garde. Mm-hmm. And I went to a very, very conservative university, Durham in England, where, where you know, there weren't all, I mean, it was the only university in England which had no organized Trotskyists, for example. It was That's the, unheard of. Yeah, it was the yeah. only university in England uh, where student union was controlled by Tories. Oh, my um, God, right. It was, yeah. So I had, although I was, you know, had uh, you know, far-left Marxist political leanings, yes. uh, there wasn't, any kind of milieu I was really part of. Um, but the, to the extent there was, Foucault was someone people talked about in, in hushed tones. <laughs> and um, yeah, going to the lectures uh, those last kind of three weeks of term, where we, in three weeks, three one hour lectures, very quickly went through what Foucault's ideas were. I and mean, it was absolutely exhilarating to me because I'd spent three years already learning the history of Western philosophy in outline. And then Foucault came along at the end and just turned everything on its head. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how I experienced it. And you know, I'd never, I'd never been in lectures that were as exciting as that to me. Um, but because it was at the end, like I couldn't really get to grips with it very seriously. We then had our final exams, which I'd already, you know, I already knew what I was going to do for them. It was already stuff I'd done uh, previously. She didn't write about. Foucault I didn't write about Foucault at that point. But what I did do uh, for the first time, really, in my life, because I'm actually it's not. I was about to say how lazy I was and how I, yeah. how I never um, would read anything on my own account. That's not really true. But uh, I, I, didn't, I went away and over the summer after my, the end of my bachelor's degree, uh, read Foucault. In fact, I, as it happens, read History of Sexuality, Volume 1, which I've now written a book about. Yes. Um, and that, that's, I mean, it was a, a fortuitous choice, let's say. I mean, it's an incredibly exciting book. It was vertiginous uh, from start to finish. Um, say more about that but well think. yeah no tell me what was it what was it that struck you in that book in particular which i which i would agree is one of foucault's great books. I mean, it's a short book it's, nice. a, it's a very powerful book what, what was it that struck you in no it's the greatest book of the 20th century <laughs> i'd say although that you know comes with a caveat that 98 percent of the books written in the 20th century probably more like 99.5 percent i haven't read <laughs> but that's you know it uh, doesn't the, mean you're not right <laughs> no no well i assume i am right, obviously but no the um look so the, that book i mean the, the at a kind of more superficial level, uh, but not superficial in an ordinary sense, just relatively, uh, you get a, a history of sexuality, the eponymous history of sexuality, which um, is, a, is a completely radical account of what sexuality is, where it comes from. It's incredibly interesting in itself, and I, I think there'd be... I, I can't see anyone who wouldn't find this relevant and interesting, but Foucault also does a number of other things in that. But most importantly... In a very brief and unmarked chapter, really only over a few pages, uh, produces an entirely new account of the operation of social power. That's uh, the most important political uh, statement of the of the century, let's say, according by my lights. You mean the last chapter on the on biopolitics? No, no, writing. I don't mean no. that. I mean the chapter called Method, um, ah, which is situated see, in, the, in the middle of the book. Yes, um, where he and you know it's it's tentative as Foucault is want to do things. It's not a theory, but. He outlines what he thinks about power. It's been it's been enormously influential. I mean, yes. it's, it's changed everything in terms of the way people talk about society. Um, it's hmm. okay. So, uh, what, what, t- tell me more about this about this chapter on method. Like, like w- particularly in terms of it, it seems to have uh, my sense is sort of retroactively 
evacuated the, the history of philosophy for you or, or rendered large swaths of it kind of irrelevant as a, as a result of... <laughs> okay, here, here we get on to this um, philosophy versus anti-philosophy yeah. uh, question. But, I mean, actually, you know, I, I think... I mean, I feel like you've, you've taken this up from comments I've made effectively in private, possibly in public uh, talks or whatever. Um, I did make one at the ACP a couple of years ago <laughs> that I thought philosophy was, was dead. But uh, that was in a panel about Justin Clements' this book, uh, psychoanalysis and anti-philosophy quite specifically. No, that's right. Um, I, I mean, it's not... I Actually, I don't really have a definitive position on this, right. this question. I mean, it's, right. it's, kind of a, it's kind of a semantic question about philosophy. I and mean, what Foucault does with philosophy is kind of disclaim it most of his career and then towards the end he uh, begins to identify as a philosopher again that's right. on the basis of a redefinition of philosophy, specifically a redefinition of philosophy as... Uh, the investigation of the link between truth and politics. Yes. Um, if we want to define philosophy that way... You're on board, right? Well, yeah. yeah, I don't know about on board, but I'm at least <laughs> waving from the dock. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I'm not sure that's what I'm doing, actually, in, in my own work. So I don't... I, that Because that really is reflective of what Foucault does in his late work, which, uh, although I think it's very interesting, is not, is not what I'm doing. Um, no. So... Uh, look, it's a it's a hard one, philosophy. I mean, as Foucault once said that uh, at the end, when all the endeavours of him and his generation of French philosophers were over, Hegel would be standing there laughing at them. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's very hard to actually say that we've departed philosophy definitively. That's that seems entirely fair. And and Foucault's, Foucault's sort of famous remark about Hegel standing with his arms folded down every every road is is yeah, I I think that's in, entirely pertinent. But okay. I mean, given given Foucault's uh, enormous influence, like like when I was a, when I was an undergraduate, and I think in I think in lots of places he's a kind of um, obligatory passage point in some ways, like he's endlessly cited, endlessly invoked, and so on. But my sense is that when you encounter him, okay, so you, you read this vertiginous text, um, the first one, the history of sexuality, you're really struck by this, but you. Also, it, it, it seems to me gradually, like from from this initial encounter, start to get a sense of of what he's a, of what he's about. Something that leads you to write the the doctoral thesis that will eventually become your book, the political philosophy of of, of Michel Foucault. That is also about trying to trying to explain to people what Foucault is really saying, apart from the the many things which he has been associated with. Right. So so in that. So, so let's talk a little bit about about that book. What are you setting out to do in the political philosophy of Michel Foucault? What 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 do you what do you think Foucault is saying that needs to be transmitted or is or is important, as especially maybe with regards to um, to what people tend to say about Foucault, right? What? Yeah. Look, I mean, there's there's several things that are going on as you'd expect in a, in a in a book of you know, sure. hundred thousand words. Um, the, the kind of headline thing that I'm doing in the book, or the back cover blurb, is I'm not sure there is a back cover blurb in that book, but anyway, yeah, uh, yeah. there's the 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 idea is that it's it's a book that that seeks to reconstruct uh, Foucault's philosophical perspective because he never propounded one deliberately. No, that's true. Uh, my claim is that he had a coherent one across his output, which uh, changes to some degree, but is basically a, a growing and concatenating view that is you know. Involves complementary insights that, that lead to a kind of uh, kind of philosophical position. I might say I was less suspicious of philosophy perhaps when I wrote that than I am now. Mm. But there, I mean, 
there's supposed to be in this a practical mission to have insights with real-world consequences. Indeed. I mean, specifically, this, the, the old chestnut political question, you know, what is to be done? Yes. Um, is, you know, you know, I don't mean that as a specific reference to Lenin because his book is of the same name as so useless at answering that question <laughs> but it, it, it's yeah the, the, this 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 you know for that reason this this remains an open question what what should we do and you know I, I was as a man in his 20s who'd been involved in some political activism by that stage but found most of what was on offer pretty lacking yes uh, you know, the, the idea was that perhaps we could find this in Foucault. Yeah. Unfortunately, most of the, the answers one gets from Foucault are negative. But that, that is then the position I end up in. Namely that, certainly intellectually, I mean, if you remember, I made reference to the fact that as a you know, teenager, when I first got interested in philosophy, my, my idea was very naively, although I think a lot of people still had this idea, that by developing an ideal vision of the way the world should be yes. you could have you could use that as a template to affect change yes and this you know by the end of that of that book political philosophy of michel foucault my first book you know the, the point is not only that that we can't do this but that attempts to do this this is foucault's position of course not mine but this is um, my point is to to bring this out from foucault as clearly as possible that attempts to do this are utterly misguided mm -hmm. and counterproductive. Yes. And particularly, I think the issue, this is something that you know gets more and more crystallized for me over time, and it's something I'm really still working on in terms of trying to expound what I see as a Foucauldian uh, political philosophy, even certainly uh, political thought, is that because we can't determine the effects of our actions in relation to politics in advance, we're pretty hidebound in terms of what we can do. Yes. We, I, I think this comes through in the, in the book in a number of ways. I mean, so on the one hand, uh, I believe your, your current uh, work for your, your future fellowship is in relation to a, a project called um, Genealogy of, of Normativity, one whose sort of Foucauldian bona fides is, is present, uh, present in the title. But I think as early as the political philosophy of Michel, Michel Foucault, one of the things you're doing is positioning Foucault against a particular vision of political philosophy. You do this from the, the opening pages of the book, um, particularly what I call a kind of normative tradition of, of what you would call, in fact, a normative tradition of political philosophy, which would be something like I, I'm going to call it a broad, broadly Kantian. So, so you know, Rawls would fall into this, Habermas would fall into this, something where you kind of reconstruct, um, you, you kind of try and ground an ethical theory uh, a, a vision of how the world should be and on the basis of that deduce practical action or something but with the with the idea being you can't move to the latter to the practical action until you were first deduced a sort of appropriate moral theory and that's something that it seems to me you reject from the outset but also that something that you you think Foucault perhaps I mean, my sense is that Foucault for you provides resources both to make a criticism of normative political theory but also gives you resources to talk about what 
um, what you replace that with, but by, by what kind of political thought replaces normative theory. So, so given that this, this links, I think, sort of the beginning of your career to where you are now, can you, you talk a bit about this, about normativity, the critique of normativity, and, and what you think should be in the place of normative political ideas? Okay, I'm not sure how much I can add to what you've already said, actually, because what, you, what you've said is, is quite detailed and quite correct about, about where I'm at now. The future fellowship that the Australian Research Council has so generously granted me is for a project investigating uh, the history of norms, but more specifically the history of the concept of norms. Right, right. And more specifically still, the history, history of the concept of norms in relation to normativity or of, or of the normative. Mm. And, I mean, this, this term normative is one which has considerable currency Very much across it, yeah. the humanities and social sciences yes. today. Yes. Uh, I, I believe it generally circulates without clear definition. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, the, perhaps the oddest thing about it at all is that its currency is of extremely recent date, to paraphrase Foucault. It's, it's really been in popular usage. I mean, it's not in popular everyday usage, no, but no, in, no. in common usage in in the academy for 40 years maybe right. and for hundreds of years before that people in fact did what we now call normative theory but without making use of the term yeah so Kant wouldn't doesn't use the term as far as I as he as uses as the term norm but I don't think the term normative no although yeah. it has a slightly older history in the German language than it does in the English yeah, right. uh, and indeed it came into English from German unambiguously mm -hmm. um, but uh, through Christian uh, tracts actually but oh interesting uh, I didn't know that yeah, yeah. I, I haven't investigated the the history of that very thoroughly. Mm. But look, the, the point, getting away from the etymology, which is probably um, somewhat boring, the claim indeed is that we live in a, well, this is Foucault's claim already, we live in a society of the norm, but I see uh, political thought, which we've specifically latched onto, but all kinds of other um, academic discourses as subscribing to this through the use of this concept of the normative. And this goes back well before the invention of this concept of the normative. Yes. Um, as you've suggested, certainly Kant is a very key figure here, but I think it goes back considerably further than that. I mean, the, the origins of it, I tend to, in academic thought, I tend to trace now to the early political philosophers, the social contract theorists. Um, mm -hmm. Not quite sure exactly which ones uh, to invoke with any precision, sure. uh, but certainly kind of Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, they're all engaged, I think, in giving a normative vision of society. Of course, they haven't done what you get later on, which is the linking of personal morality uh, to a normative view of politics, at least not in the way that Kant will do it. I mean, with Rousseau, of course, you have a bit of concern for personal morality, certainly, but... Um... True. Um... I, oh, oh, sorry, Mark. No, there was no. I'm, I'm, there was another part of your question which I could oh. answer, which is what what I would replace the normative with. I mean, yes. the, my problem with these views going going back hundreds of years is that they that they want to give us an ideal version of the world and then bring it about, which I uh, believe is doomed for disaster, if you will, after Foucault. Um, yeah, that's that's for the for the reason that it it just doesn't work out the way you wanted to and, and I believe that's necessarily the case mm -hmm. uh, because of the inability of human beings to actually understand society because of its complexity. Uh, basically we're dealing with an object, even politics, uh, even other human beings are all complex objects for yes. which 
we, we can't understand. And this is this is elementary um, complexity theory, or indeed systems theory, I think, although the systems theorists are a bit more hopeful than I am about it. But uh, what I would replace it with, or what Foucault replaces with it, with, it this with, is is simply critique. That is uh, the other aspect of the, the Kantian project. Yes. So um, the idea is we can't, or we shouldn't, build castles in the sky. Instead, we should uh, be concerned to knock them down. Right. But you don't mean do you mean you don't mean critique in the sense of you know looking for the transcendental conditions of something. But you but you mean it in the sense of like. Um, do you mean like like criticizing the overextensions of of reason? Like that would be part of the the Kantian sense, or or where you know where where our faculties. I mean, this this does make your project sound more Kantian than I was. But mm -hmm. but I can see the connection now. Like like checking the points where there's a kind of uh, hubris in relation to our own knowledge, right? Where we start sort of speculative projects or something like that, mm -hmm. and and the sort of speculative impulse overflows the, the bounds of what we can actually know. And then you come in and, and uh, criticise that, that, that sort of... That, that's right, and that is Kantian exactly the way you describe, and, and um, yeah, I mean that intentionally. It, critique, though, in terms of what I'm talking about, certainly includes that, but not just that. And of course, no. uh, Foucault's critique is um, generally not this kind of critique. No. Uh, it's, it's generally a critique that proceeds through what he calls genealogy, that is, by looking um, not at discourses and their internal flaws, but at the lines of dissent and emergence yes. of discourses and institutions, so uh, archaeology for the discourses, genealogy for the institutions, yes. and by showing where they've come from, yes. undermining yes. Uh, their apparent solidity and self-understanding. So this is a this is a, 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 a I mean a, a Nietzschean I, I I mean I mean conception. I, I think that actually the the only time I can recall these the two concepts sort of explicitly put together is are is in uh, Deleuze's book on Nietzsche, where I think where he talks about he talks about um, critique in the Kantian sense, kind of um, being uh, um, having having sort of life inject to it to it via Nietzsche, and presumably his his. Um, uh, presumably, I, he is thinking of Foucault there, or at least is in some kind of intellectual dialogue with. with. So, when when one does the the genealogy of of normativity, and you trace, you mentioned those lines of um, dissent. I think referring to the the um, the essay uh, uh, Nietzsche gene genealogy history, where he he takes the, he he differentiates like the four German like from Ursprung or origin, and and then he talks about Herkunft, which I think is descent, and two others which I've temporarily forgotten. But but these these different, I mean, it, it, to distinguish it from archaeology, that you're sort of showing a, a an impurity of the origin, right? Like that you're not that the things are going to have multiple origins, and then that they're not going to be and and contradictory origins, and and so forth. So you got because because well, there could be an apologetic version of genealogy that I think you sure. But the, we, I mean, the, the point the point there is not to talk about the origin, right? Which is something yeah, yeah, that right, I find right. I find hard yes. to remember when yes. I'm when I'm speaking loosely. Uh -huh. But the point uh -huh. the, the, is not to talk about the origin, the Ursprung, the original exactly, spring exactly. Uh, from which things come, because actually, in a sense, that doesn't matter, right? If we, I mean, this is the the mistake that a gambit makes. If I can already start firing <laughs> shots at your broadside, <laughs> the the which is to, which is to think that that by tracing something back to the origin, you yeah. actually get question, answers about how it happens today. It doesn't matter where the origin is. What matters yes. is how, how we got there, and particularly in more recent, recent parts of that story. So, um, you know, 
concepts can emerge and then come to mean something completely opposite to what they originally did. Exactly. You can have some, That's you know, what you said, yeah. yeah. And the fact that not everything contains the trace, right? This is no, this is no. the problem with with uh, you know thinkers who think in terms of the trace. Mm -hmm. Certain traces, I mean, perhaps we can follow them back in some sense and recover them, but that doesn't things things aren't always tainted with their origin. Uh, they they can they're tainted with their history, mm. which is why we want to talk about the line of descent that Herkunft rather than the rather than coming the coming hither, right? That's Herkunft. Yeah. It's it's yeah. um yeah. No, that strikes me that's that strikes me as really as really important and, and central to your work because if I think of um uh bonus, what was I gonna say? Um genealogical oh yeah da, 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 damn what were you talking about? What did you say immediately before that? And I have to cut my moment of stuttering. Um, genealogical bollocks, Herkunft's uh, descent. Oh, your critique of critique of origin. Of oh, that's what I was going to say. Um, in yeah, I mean, if you if you take something like um, the will to knowledge, the first one in the history of sexuality, as as a as an example of this, or a sort of exemplary case of this kind of genealogy that looks at, at lines of descent. I mean, it's clear to me that um, the you know, if, if you wanted to trace sex to its origin, you could give this sort of biological discourse, philosophical anthropology, you should have started, you know, the very latest with the ancient Greeks, if not Sumerians or whatever, whereas that is not what Foucault does. Well, well and, and he, I mean, there's, yeah, he, he in, a, in a way he does. I mean, this actually is, because Foucault in the second and third does actually volumes, go back to Greece. Well, he goes back to ancient Greece. Yeah. But what's so interesting with that, and indeed the, the point of these books, which is often missed because, um, I mean, really, they're just such boring books. And, and, yeah, they're not and, very uh, interesting. No, they're, the they're, second they're, don't, yeah, don't bother yeah. reading them. I mean, you imagine my disappointment as a, you know, <laughs> as, a, as a youngster reading the first the first volume and thinking it was so exciting, and then like can't wait to get into the second volume. What the hell is this? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, don't don't run out and read those. But the the point in essence is that you can't trace it back that far. Once you go back exactly. to ancient Greece and Rome. They don't have sex Sexuality, in the no. modern sense. No, 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 no. And th but that is Foucault's point, I think. Exactly, with those, I agree. With those studies is to show how different things can be. Yes, and that is is a way of radically problematizing what we have now. Yes, namely by showing that there's completely different ways of living which we just don't understand. No, that's right. I mean, yeah, it stops you from naturalizing these concepts by by having a sort of a historical vision of them. So, yeah, I mean, that's why. Yeah, he. I think in the first one, he focuses on. Um, uh, sexuality as something that's very much tied to, I suppose it, there's a connection with his, his earlier work, he's interested in the emergence of it as uh, a phenomenon, like on the one hand the species has been having sex for God knows how long, etc, and the Greeks you know, they certainly shag each other a lot, but sex as this as this sort of locus of, of discourse and power, sex, sexuality as something that might high, carry the truth about ourselves, as he says, something something that you can study, you can bring into the, the light, and through looking at it, find some sort of truth of the human subject, that that's just, as far as Foucault is concerned, un, like, unknown to the Greeks and, and, and to the Romans, instead mm. there are these weird laws of boring dietetic laws and like you know who's on top and <laughs> who's the man and like you know and all of these these kind of scriptures um okay so all right so with this con so with this genealogical conception you take it towards um um uh the the notions the notions of of normativity and so you, it, I, I in what sense i i think one of the things it seems to me that you're trying to do is to re 
reject the idea that you can extract a politics from a morality? Would you would you say that that's true? Well, it's it's not just the connection that bothers me. It's both politics and morality that right, bother good. me. Right. So right. the yeah the 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 problem is either to, you know, any attempt either to to give us a normative political yes. theory or alternatively to give us say a normative theory of morality um, if you combine them or you split them up doesn't matter much yeah uh, and there's been all kinds of attempts to do you know both or either of those that's right. and to change the relations you can have the politics first then the morality or the morality first then the politics doesn't mm-hmm. really matter the problem is to criticize the normativity yeah yeah absolutely okay so when people talk about normativity i mean you mentioned you mentioned the sort of vagueness of this term and i do yeah if if i think about some of the ways in which the term is used in in contemporary philosophy i mean you often get it in this kind of uh, like I know there's this whole debate, even someone like Ray Brassier is working on this this now via analytic philosophy of trying to, you know, they'll they'll put it in these terms, naturalize the normative, right? Like to try and to try and find a a way of making compatible a series of I, I suppose they'd say rational cognitive rather than moral norms with um with the insights of science, right? But my sense is you just are not interested in that in any project of that sort it's not just about morality but it's about it's about the domain of the normative as broadly considered as as you would like well, that's right it's more basic it's about the domain of the norm right? yeah so right the, the, the norm in general and you my my problem with the norm is is precisely about when it's naturalized yes indeed when there's a claim that the norm is something other than a than an invention yes uh, because when you when you naturalize it then you you start saying well everything needs to conform to this yes not merely as a matter of um, you know heuristics or of or of my divine will <laughs> uh, but but uh, sorry I shouldn't bring divinity into that complicated it's not <laughs> a matter of my my mortal will actually that's yeah point. yeah that's right but rather um, because there is a you know in a necessity to conform to the norm. Mm. And I don't believe norms of this type exist. Well, I don't think there are natural mm-hmm. norms. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have you know, sympathy for the use of norms as a heuristic. So say in, in medicine, uh, you, know, you need to kind of have an idea what someone's temperature should be if you haven't you know someone coming to hospital you need to check their blood pressure yeah you don't have time to debate whether you know this norm has uh, a transcendental <laughs> reality you just have to kind of have some yardstick by which to measure someone's blood pressure to kind of get an immediate idea right, whether right. they're okay or not which you then may need to revise and because of the, the, the point being that there is um no way i mean this this really, what I'm saying now, uh, comes from my reading of Georges Congiem, mm. uh, who's a medical doctor slash philosopher who wrote a magisterial book called The Normal and the Pathological, yes, which yes. is immensely influential on Foucault. Foucault yeah. And uh, yeah, Congiem's conclusion is that although everyone in medicine, because of their you know, biological scientific leanings, wanted to have a naturalistic conception of the norm because they need norms to do medicine, in fact, you can't get one. There is simply no basis to yeah. assert these norms. Rather, the assertion of standards of what we would call the normal in yeah. medicine are actually normative assertions. That is, uh-huh. they're, they're essentially unfounded and arbitrary, but nevertheless necessary. Yes, necessary as heuristic. So we, I imagine, would you draw a, a political analogue with this, that, that norms, that your critique of the normative your, and, and your sort of genealogical sort of uprooting and contamination of that idea, it, you know, still allows for the presence of norms in a basic heuristic way, as in we're still going to have an argument as a sort of political group. You might still stand up with a microphone and say, no, we should 
not storm the Winter Palace or something like that. But the problem is kind of the problem is kind of hypothesizing that into like, oh no, we we derived that from the eternal laws of reason or Okay, so that's an interesting example you're giving. So look, when it comes to the and this this is something that I, I should mention in relation to going back a step here really with Foucault. Good. When I talk about not having a normative political theory, yeah. uh, that's what I'm opposed to in favour of Foucault's version of critique. This is about the intellectual activity in relation to politics. Ah, right? yes, indeed. Right. It's about, so the, the, what Foucault wants to say is that the role of intellectuals yes. is not to provide the utopian vision. No. It is to criticise. Yes. And intellectuals should never be seduced by the lure of getting involved with the kind of positive politics, of joining a political party, of cheerleading for one person, because then you dull your faculties. The intellectual should always be on the sidelines and should, should criticise everything that's wrong, because there's always plenty that's wrong. Yeah, hell yes. Of course, that, that's not to say that this is necessarily a possible vision for the political movement itself. Now, precisely because I'm in the position of the intellectual, let's say, perhaps this is a cop-out, but I don't want to to say how political movements should organise no, right. themselves. Uh, perhaps they need some kind of norm as a heuristic as you say, perhaps they don't. I mean, uh, yeah. uh, I'm not sure if I have a view about this or not right now. But, but you, think it's, it, you think it's not an important thing for the, an intellectual to sort of, sort of uh, proclaim from the, the cathedral? Well, right? the opposite. Like, I think it's very yeah. important that intellectuals yeah. not, do not do that. side with the formulation of yeah. norms. But so, this is how intellectuals in, in political theory yeah. typically take their task as the deliberate formulation of norms. And yes. Just to define norms, yes, good. Uh, this, my definition of the norm, which is, is not supposed to be, um, it's a kind of, it, it's a novel definition, but it comes from Foucault, uh, but it, it's also supposed to be a description, not merely, it's not merely a doxastic definition of my own, but supposed to be a kind of description of the way things are operating in real discourses about the norm, mm -hmm. namely that the norm is a vision of perfection, right. which, to which everything is supposed to then conform, yes. yet inevitably does not. The inevitably does not is simply uh, something you can infer from the idea that you know, if you have a perfect model, nothing will actually conform to it. And as Foucault says, we live in a society of the norm. My reading is that's true, and it's true about every dimension of our society, because in every dimension of our social life, we have theorists, um, some perhaps at the level of the you know, university, but uh, some perhaps uh, less educated, one could say, propounding their visions of what perfection should be. That, that, that's the case, whether it's about what our bodies should look like, yes. uh, how our behavior should be, yes. what, you know, how our minds should work, or indeed how our political society should work. Yes, yes, no, fascinating. I mean, this, this, this really interests me at the level of, um, I sometimes, uh, perhaps I'm going to like this because it involves a sort of uh, um, subtly a Gambenian reference, but there is a, um, I, I think, an, an interesting correlate between there's, there's a kind of uh, complaint on the, on the right, right, uh, on the political right. It would often be like we live in a society, like, like an immoral society and, and all, of, all of this kind of, kind of nonsense. But I think, you know, I, I think what you're saying here is, is very compelling and I think it's something you get you get in Foucault that there's a kind of hypertrophy of, of norms under modernity in this space where I mean the expression a gamma would use from via via um Scholem is that they're that they're in force without signification that, that as in meaning they, they exist in this sort of paradoxical space where on the one hand no one will sort of 
acknowledge the legitimacy of norms or can really ground that or of or if even of, of like telling people what to do or you know they'll, they'll they'll all bring out a certain you know will bring out a certain kind of relativistic or liberal platitude about you know you can't bind people to do x and y but on the other hand we totally totally like despite that disavow we're constantly doing that all the time we're you know we're subjecting every area of life to to more and more norms like do, do you see this this kind of tension a kind of tension between a sort of a sort of antinomianism on the one hand uh, uh, and even even libertarianism but combined with combined with sort of norm hypertrophy or like yeah, look, there there is a connection here between the. I mean, I can't I can't talk about the the Agamben oh, yeah, sure, connection no. simply because that. I yeah I'm ignorant of that and deliberately so. <laughs> the, we'll talk about that later. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we'll we'll just keep skirting around it. With, with, uh, barbed comments being passed back, before, uh, whatever you prefer. But uh, my my the, audience likes B. I think I think they like the barbed comments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, who knows? Uh, send Brian an email and tell him. Uh, uh, the, you're absolutely right. There's antinomianism is really important here, and so taking it back to Foucault once again, that's what I'll continue to do. The and Foucault, what Foucault says is that the society of the law comes to exist via the diminution of the law. Right, right, that, right. That is the, right. the replacement in effect. Mm-hmm. Because it's not it's not exactly a replacement because the law continues to exist. It merely is eclipsed by the the rise of the norm. And of course. Yes. There's this very interesting thing, which is an important topic of my research, uh-huh. namely that, that Foucault says that the, but without really explaining what he means, that the law itself comes to operate like a norm. And How interesting. It's, it's, I mean, it, I don't know this reference. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay, so it's in yeah. the History of Sexuality, Volume 1. Uh, how this, terrible if you did not But it's, yeah, it's yeah. a single sentence. Uh-huh, I mean, this, uh-huh. is, this is the brilliance of that book. Uh-huh. Uh, that's, yeah, I, I, I could write, you know, 30,000 words on this, but it, it starts off as a single single phrase. No, it's so evocative and interesting, absolutely. Um, So, no, um, but the, yeah, the question of signification is slightly more vexed, I think, is it, Mm -mm. the, the, in, in a, it's true that norms kind of don't have to be written down in the way that the law does, but there is, I think, I don't know, it seems to me that there are, you know, plenty of instances of people signifying. Yeah, I mean, yeah, okay. I mean, maybe, uh, and yeah, I know uh, we, we don't want to go into the Charlotte, but I mean, it's perhaps a bad translation in the sense that the word, the word, the word that's used, um, I know you, your German is better than mine, the word, the word uh, used is, is Geltung, like, like, or like, or, or no Geltung, right? So, yeah, yeah. Um, so, and I think, I think the kind of thing that he means is, is like, where you still conform to a norm, where there's a norm and you uphold it and you conform to it, despite a certain amount of, we could put it in a, a sort of Zizekian register of, of like disavow. So, so for instance, something like, uh, something as, as simple as, I, I don't know, uh, Christmas traditions, right? Like you go sort of, we, you know, we, we, uh, this is all bollocks, we don't believe in religion, like it's kind of a terrible sort of crass materialist capitalism. But you still, you know, you still buy the things and, and give people the presents and whatever. I think, I think that's the sort of level uh, uh, that Agamemnon means. But I don't know whether that, um, that resonates at all with, with, with what you're saying about, about Foucault. And, uh, yeah, and I mean, I think, yeah. I, look, I suspect, again, and there's, there's a difficulty talking about anything that has to do with the Gambon because of my practiced ignorance of the Gambon, but the, I mean, it's not entirely practiced that I'm also quite lazy, but the, you know, the, the, I mean, there's a difficulty in general here, right, yeah, right. which is the, the historical frame. Yes. That is, that if one defines norms, for example, as sociologists do, yeah. they mean as any habitual human practice. I mean, that, that definition then does cover any society that's ever existed. It does. Right? And, 
I mean, in fact, this is true also of the way that philosophers define norms, namely as forms of moral prescription. Agreed. Okay, you can find that in any in any human society, or even like like cognitive speak, discursive prescription, whatever. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But this kind of this this kind of I mean, this this would be you know certainly I think in in Agamben we tend to get much more of a transhistorical frame. I mean, Agamben's somewhat historicist, but. Um, wants to take as his frame of reference a really broad sweep of history. Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, wh whereas you know, Foucault wants to do this, I mean, I had an argument with Mick Heron about this the other night. Mm -hmm. uh, he accused me of being attached to the threshold of modernity thesis. I wasn't entirely sure what he was talking about. Yeah, but I don't know what that means. I think, uh, yeah. no, no, but there's, there's uh, no, no, I mean, I, I understand the words, what the meaning of the words are, and therefore I understand there's a claim that things work profoundly different in modernity to how they were before. And oh, indeed, okay. I am yes. very attached to that yes, thesis, yes, as is right. Foucault. It's it's Foucault's yeah. thought is, is um, it's a thought about profound historical rupture and the idea yes. that things really change between historical periods. Yes. And uh, Agamben, I think, could allow that that's true, just that it probably hasn't happened for two and a half thousand years, <laughs> or possibly longer, uh, whereas um, you know, Foucault, this, this happens relatively frequently. And I, I certainly think when it comes to norms, there's a number of kind of important changes, but there's a, a big change I would identify. And here I'm really going beyond or indeed departing from Foucault, but I think uh, it, it's really all about the death of God. And um, mm -hmm. it, it's therefore pretty much coextensive with modernity. Uh, once you have enlightenment reason coming in and promising uh, to be able to do things that previously didn't seem possible in this world, you start having visions of perfection come in. Suddenly uh, we have the idea, this is my hypothesis anyway, that suddenly we have the idea that we can perfect society, uh, that we can perfect human beings, rather than uh, just having to wait for the apocalypse to come and sort it out. Mm. I mean, okay, this is, this is a very useful clarification, because in this sense it, it seems to me that your specific sense of norm is, is very much tied up with something like a, a kind of... Uh, utopianism and maybe even what uh, an idealism in a Marxist sense where idealism wouldn't mean um, you know something that I think no one has ever believed ever which is which is the idea that you know there's no real stuff and like that rocks aren't real and that it's all really in our head but Barclay uh, yeah <laughs> okay apart from Bishop Barclay and even then there are yeah even then there's that whole there's that whole um, there's that whole element that you get in some of these idealists of of like that the idealism is in the defense of a kind of empirical realism right like like that they're trying anyway putting putting that as like metaphysical debate not the sort of thing we want to go into but i mean the idealism in the sense of of you know you have a pres a sort of frictionless utopia uh, prescription right or utopian vision that isn't i mean it's, it's this sort of critique even even hegel would make right um uh, without any reference to the actual sort of world or context from which not only not only are those categories supposed to be applied but as in these norms are supposed to be applied but as Hegel would say that it's 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 also this this world from which those categories emerge right so 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 Hegel would, Hegel would say you know it's it's so untrue to reality to act as if here, here we have norms and where did they come from don't ask um but they have to be to reply to this world like like the task is instead to sort of say no well how did how did those norms emerge from this world Ge genealogy and then what the hell makes you think they can be applied like a, a template would you call so it's utopianism idealism post-enlightenment is uh yeah and it's it's absolutely right that this this utopianism um is 
what I'm criticising for being utopianism, which I think is the essence of normative thinking, yeah, right, right, um, is is to be associated with idealism, and certainly in the you know the the contemporary political, the dominant contemporary political philosophy is mm. utopian liberal idealism, mm-hmm. and that partakes of all of these. Of course, materialism is not necessarily entirely innocent here. Yeah. Uh, so it's <laughs> it's one can still have a materialist utopianism, I think, although. Um, I decided after much, uh, after several years of thinking about it, that Marx is innocent of that. Ah, that's very that's very interesting. Um, how I mean, is it be, because of the way he relates? I mean, just thinking about to my my last point, the, the, because of the way that for Marx it isn't ever a you know I mean Marx is 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 incredibly critical. I mean, I was, I, I'm thinking of something like the German ideology of 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 I imagine you would see the German ideology of something like a critique of the normative in in your sense is that. Uh, sure. No, absolutely. Yeah. And the, the 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 key thing for me is that Marx refuses to be utopian. He, yeah. He he refuses to give people a positive vision of communism. Yes. Because Mar- Marx is sophisticated enough to know that we basically don't know what communism will be like. Yes. Yet. Uh, so you know, Marx is not a utopian, and he's he's profoundly anti-normative. I mean, actually, I'm writing about this at the moment. Yeah. Um, he has his other problems though. I mean, there's, there's, there's ways in which I think normativity creeps back in in Marx, which mm-hmm. is why ultimately I'm not a Marxist. Hmm. Where do you think the normativity... Okay, because... Oh, sorry, I'm going to ask you where you think the normativity creeps back in, but I, I, I mean, uh, prima facie, I, 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 think you're, I think you're right to suggest that he isn't a normative thinker in, in your sense. Like I'm, and, and one of the reasons I, I think that is is the way in which he, for instance, like, is, is more likely to do an analysis of, of real political praxis right or to or to see the way a particular situation has changed rather than sort of imposing this this i mean it's, it's ironic because he's accused of precisely the opposite this sort of doctrinaire um um uh, utopian framework in the sense but where, where do you think that breaks down in marx like well it, it breaks down because although he's he's not utopian in terms of actually describing communism he nevertheless yeah. insists that communism is coming yes and he claims to be able to know that yes and that's for me, a bridge too far. Indeed, this is the bridge too far that, that materialism in general goes over, which is um, claiming to know things we cannot know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think Marx is not a utopian, but he does have a prophetic discourse which yeah. uh, claims to know about the future. And this, for me, is the reason why, in the end, I decided Foucault. I mean, I went through a, a whole, you know, when I, when I started, um, you know, reading Foucault, I was an anarchist, but at least you know, <laughs> for your very, sense. very <laughs> sympathetic to, to libertarian or left communism right, Marx right, right. Um, but via reading Foucault I decided initially that Marx was a utopian and they rejected him and then you know kind of decided that in fact he wasn't <laughs> then decided to become a Marxist again and then realized that he almost kind of uh, Damascene deconversion experience. <laughs> like I was preparing a paper and found the kind of smoking gun where, where, where like really Foucault has Marx on the on the prophecy question, and then I thought, well, okay, this is this is the problem mm. with Marx. But I mean, I uh, uh, my sense is, and I, I want to talk about this book in a moment, that especially in in even though you do criticise Marx in in your new book, Biopolitical Imperialism, I mean, that your thought remains. Uh, indebted to Marxism, just, just purged of those elements, which I think are the elements that a lot of, of Marxists, um, I'm thinking, well, they don't want to have a fight with you about him, but Alain Paty would, would, would purge some of the, the futural, messianic, sure. like elements like lots of thinkers would, would do, but, especially the philosophy of the history, that's, that's sort of the least fashion, the Engelsian philosophy of history is, is like the least fashionable element of Marx, yeah. Not quite right, but uh, Badiou, like me, 
doesn't call himself a Marxist. In, absolutely, he calls I mean, himself a communist. That's yeah. right, which yeah. is actually also something I don't want to do because I think that has utopian right. but the, resonances. But, of course, there's a kind of dispute about this. Sure. Uh, there's been no way Badiou wants to hold on to it. Yes. Um, I, I'm more sceptical about the event he wants to cling to there, but... Sure, sure, and yeah, I, I think I think this would this would take us, of, of course, where we where we to, to talk about that in greater detail. For, all right, so for the moment, this this book by political imperialism that you've re- written recently, like I I, I mean I've, I've read it quite recently myself. It's extra, it's extraordinarily, I mean, one of the initial comments that comes in is extraordinarily kind of um, incisive, but also unsentimental book. Um, what what provoked you to to write this quite um, this this sort of um, Huh, kind of quite devastating indictment of everything, <laughs> you know, um, uh, to, uh, to name something that I think a, an, an early work of Marx is a kind of critique of almost everything. Well, no, <laughs> Marx speaks in a, in a letter, uh, I can't remember the, the date, but I, you know, it's, I'm very fond of this remark. He says, you know, we have to do the, quote, ruthless criticism of all everything that, that exists. exists. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that, that is a pretty good summary of what I think I should be doing. And that's certainly what I tried to do in that book. And well, actually, you, for once, to do it about reality rather than philosophy. On, on, uh, yeah. And in my opinion, you, you most definitely have succeeded in this. <laughs> all right. So, so uh, by political imperialism, I mean, first of all, the, the, uh, you begin by, by saying that um, you're taking the concept of of biopolitics um, um, from Foucault, and one of the things that I think you know maybe think about, not that I know who they are, but the audience of this podcast. One of the things that I think um, will surprise readers of the podcast is is the valence that you give to that term, as in, in your critique of um, uh, simultaneously Negri and and Agamben, and again uh, we we don't have to go into the into the details of it, but the conception of biopolitics that you have. I think, which I think comes from a mixture of, of, of the history of sex and, and those Foucault's lectures at the College de France, the, the, the paired sort of years of, of security uh, territory, uh, population territory, and um, the birth of biopolitics. You've got vision of biopolitics as a, uh, an intervention at the level of, of population, often, often related to the, the, the sort of uh, uh, maximize the enhancement of life right like like affecting so healthcare reforms and these are and i think one of the things that would surprise my audience is especially if they if they've grown up in a sort of milieu where they've heard it as a sort of a uh, vaguely a gambenian shibboleth is the term i think doesn't have an entirely negative valence for you right like it's not it's not used as a term of an index of of horror or like oh, on the so contrary it has, it's, a, it's a positive concept yeah so, yeah of course I, I mean positive there in the technical sense not the not the normative sense, sense, right? exactly exactly so i don't but this you know i don't have i mean again trying to be true to foucault yeah i am i there there's no at least, I mean, you know, if, you, if you're a lot of a lot of normative theorists, let's say, don't believe it's possible to talk about anything, certainly not politics, without having a bunch of normative yeah. uh, presuppositions in play. And a lot of readers of Foucault, particularly from the kind of Frankfurt School critical theory yes. position, like to read Foucault and say, well, you know, he disavows these normative presuppositions, but you can see them. Yeah. So Charles I'm sure Taylor people would yeah. say, yeah, yeah, he's a, yeah, he's a, yes, he's a seminal case, Nancy Fraser. Um, mm, exactly. Yeah. Habermas, Habermas of course, yes, so, yes. Anyway, basically everyone with the critical, you know, everyone who wants to use Foucault but wants to use him in normative direction kind of has to say, oh, well, because that's, I mean, I'm really getting off the track here. Because no, no, Frank, no, Frankfurt time. School Critical Theory asserts that, you know, you need, at least in, in, in 
in more recent generations that you need normativity to have social progress so um, they, we need to read, read it everywhere. Uh, look, the, the question you actually asked uh, about biopolitics, uh, so, but the, this round, it's surrounded by, by a way of saying I don't have a normative assessment of biopolitics yes, yes. nor does Foucault, right? Yeah, it's just a, I mean, that's that's right. I think you position it as just, it, it, it does represent a shift from a certain kind of configuration of power to a more modern one, but that's it. Like you don't, it, I, I mean, when I say that your book is unsentimental, one of the things I mean is you don't, you don't freight that with any kind of eschatological pathos, which which in a lot of cases, I think the, the term biopolitics has had either within a, a broadly sort of a gambit, like like it's the negative, like it's the it's the sort of um, sign of, of modernity's kind of greatest horrors, or on the other hand, on the other hand, it represents, it has something to do with the, the sort of unstoppable constitutive power of the multitude or something, and you, and you reject the pathos of both of those things from the outset. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but nonetheless, I mean, despite the fact that you do this, you do tie um, the term by politics, via by the adjective biopolitical, to imperialism. Can you tell me about about how you see the connection between those two terms? Well, the idea. So, I mean, the, the genesis of this book, which actually I think you were asking about uh, before, where yeah, what yeah, indeed, indeed. I mean, the you know, the, there were there've been a number of people who've written about biopolitics and international relations. Right. Um, particularly in international relations theory, but actually the most prominent example are two people you already mentioned, Tony Negri and Michael Hart. Right, yes. have written now a, a sequence of uh, less, you know, a sequence of books diminishing in popularity with each iteration <laughs> uh, about, about how to do this. Um, although it, it's also Bears saying, as I said in the book, that when they say biopolitics, they it ha has no specific meaning at all, other than just what you rightly identified as a constituent power in the, the Spinozan sense. It's 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 a globalized form of constituent power, which has no no relation at all to what Foucault says when, no. when he says it. Um, but my my idea was that if you used Foucault's concept, which again it kind of gets lost. I mean, you find these mm. extraordinary treatments these days. Did there's this great trend now to talk about biopolitics without naming whose biopolitics you're talking about, <laughs> which Indeed. perhaps it's my you know, philosophical training, but I, it seems to me that the various circulating definitions of biopolitics are simply different. When Gambon says it, when Esposito says it, when yeah. Negri says it, when Foucault says it, they all mean different things. Yes. Um, some of them have some relation to each other, but they're, they're different things. Uh, so, but you get, you get things written about biopolitics and international relations, say, which doesn't define what biopolitics is, yet uh, you know masquerades as having some kind of sense to it when in fact I, I think then if you don't say what biopolitics is and, and start throwing the word around it's just meaningless uh, mm. but my, my idea is that if you use Foucault's notion of biopolitics mm. and apply it to looking at what's happening in the world today uh, you get the result is this book which is something that greatly resembles at least classical Marxist theories of imperialism. Absolutely, yeah. But in the place of economics, uh, I have biopolitics. That is, where in classical Marxist theories of imperialism, they read the you know, global system, let's say, use Wallerstein's variation on this, to be about economic flows yes. um, which benefit Center to continue using Palestinian language at the expense of the periphery. Yeah. 
I, I see this as um, being uh, a matter of a, a, a biopolitics which um, enhances the life mm. of the population of the centre of the rich countries at the expense of the lives of people in the periphery. That's right. And you look at this in a, in a number of uh, um, different fields. I mean, I think, again, one of the a sort of methodological axiom of the, of the book and, and the only point where you... Uh, I, th I think the point on which you most explicitly break from Marxism is on the one hand, it, it, it does seem a, a, a very Marxist book in the, in the sense that, yeah, I mean, you, you make, uh, you invoke sort of a, a theory of, of, of imperialism, of sort of the parasitism, the way these, these kind of wealthy countries like, uh, uh, like um, rely upon the exploitation of, of poor countries. On the other hand, you, you say explicitly that you don't grant a sort of primacy to the to the economic considered as a sphere it's like it, 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 it's it's this interaction where you have you have sort of circulations of, of of bodies you talk about you talk about the production of uh and, and circulation of food you talk about i suppose uh, the, um, the way the the ecological costs are, 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 are distributed and, and sort of risks are distributed around the around the world you yeah um, you, you talk about immigration, migration, all, all of these sorts of things. But, it, but that's to do with, this is the sense in which you don't give economy primacy, as in it's not just about the circulation of capital. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, the ca I should make the caveat, which I do in the book, that I'm, I'm just trying not to talk about economics here. So economics remains immensely important. I mean, this of is something course. people uh, from left-wing critics of Foucault misunderstand. Yeah. In Fou this is a gesture that Foucault's been trying to repeat. Namely, you know, Foucault doesn't talk about economics. I mean, he does talk about economics as an academic discipline in the order of things, but in most of his yeah. books, doesn't talk about the economic aspect because Marxists, uh, you know, many Marxists, at least the vulgar Marxists, assert the primacy of the economic. Yes. Um, Marxists have already done so much work on on the economic aspect of this. So if you want to know about economic imperialism, there's any number of uh, very good treatments of it. Mm. And that's why I bracketed out of consideration. So yes. if, if, to the extent that that exists, we can bolt that onto my account. Probably my account is not as important as those. Um, nevertheless, the claim, again, after Foucault, is that you know the domain of the biopolitical is not merely a kind of pale echo of the domain of the economic. No. It's, like semi-autonomous, let's say, yes. um, as, as are a whole series of domains. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think, uh, could you, could you uh, would, how would you feel about um, reprising your account of, I suppose, uh, it, 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 it's quite a, I, I think it's a wonderfully nuanced account of, um, of immigration, emigration, anti-immigration politics in relation to biopolitics the way you treat this this very sort of um, um, sort of live controversial sort of real world issue in the book yeah well there's a lot to say about it and you, you're right to, to say it's controversial and I think I mean you know that, that yeah I think there's a lot of things I say in the book that are deeply impalatable to almost everyone I mean it's a it's a book which I'm, I'm very conscious as being one which I expect to please almost no one it won't please Marxists because it's it's bracketed stuff too much and, and goes for this, you know, Pomo Foucauldian vocabulary, <laughs> as uh, they call it. And, yeah, uh, yeah, sure. I, I, I actually put air quotes around that, but of course, yeah, the <laughs> podcast, so you wouldn't, you wouldn't know. You're uh, missing all kinds of visual gags, listeners. No, that They're was really the only one. Um, yeah, but uh, uh, yeah, and it, it of course will displease everyone on the right because it's or, or you know liberals because it's too too strident in its mm. invocation of uh, Lenin and so on. Um, but the, yeah, when it comes to immigration, 
trying to think how to say this. I mean, there's a whole chapter on it, effectively. Yes, indeed. What do we see? We see the the key the key thing we see worldwide with populations, right? I mean, biopolitics on Foucault's definition, the key term is not the bio or the politics; it's population. Yes, right? that's that's what biopolitics is about. Foucault. It's about the creation of population. Yes, and what what is a population? Well, it's basically a group of people under the care of a state. Yes, uh, you could perhaps conceive of it as being under the care of a private sector in some kind of. Um, libertarian paradise but uh, mm. right libertarian I mean of course but, yeah, uh, yeah the, it's, it's about the population so um, and what you see globally today is the constitution of populations um, which exclude others yes right? um, indeed the constitution of population in a certain sense is premised on exclusion yes um, because in order to have a population at least in the form of biopolitics that we've had that's developed over the last few hundred years. Perhaps we can have another one, but the form of biopolitics that has existed is based on boundaries to the population. Mm -hmm. And as uh, freedom of movement, uh, or rather the, the capacity to move, the technologies of movement, um, mass transportation and so on have increased, there has emerged a need to police these boundaries. The reason that exists is because of model which has been adopted whereby the the state well firstly the state has to regulate its population I mean that's that's mm. essential to biopolitics it is, yeah. if you want to regulate a population you need to know who's in it yes right now historically the way that emerged of doing this was to regulate who was in your territory mm -hmm. this way of doing things has increasingly broken down the one place where this really is still a going concern is Australasia mm. um, Australia has peculiar capacities because of its natural position uh, to regulate its borders absolutely. Mm -hmm. No other state today has even in principle the capacity to, to do this. So the UK is trying. Yes. It, 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 like Australia, is a kind of island. But uh, it, of course, the you know, in Britain, there's a 20-mile stretch of sea separating it from France, whereas Australia really has... Um, in fact, you know, Australia as it really exists is a series of cities on the southern and eastern fringe of the Australian continent That's which right. are separated from the rest of the world not only by the Timor Sea but also then by uh, thousands of kilometres of desert. Yes, uh, it's, yes, it's, yeah, at the centre of the continent yeah. and famously so, treacherous waters and yeah, so on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, very, it's, very, it's uniquely hard to get here. Um, elsewhere in the world though there's, there's these significant unregulated flows of people. Well, the, the, the way this is being dealt with, well, it's a mixed approach. Uh, there are attempts to actually prevent the passage of people, um, but also it involves the increasing erection of um, what uh, David Waters has called the biopolitical border, that is a border within the territory yes. which segregates people from other people. Yes. Um, and this is the problem of illegal or undocumented migrants, that they manage to gain access to territories but are then shut out of the care of the state. Yes. Um, this is where you mentioned, I mean, this is, this is one of the cases in which I think you deploy the category of, of biopolitical imperialism um, very uh, interestingly, because while you don't deny the, the real existence of, of kinds of various sort of um, awful forms of, of racism and, and nationalism in these, in these discourse, and particularly, you're particularly scathing on the um, kind of infamous uh, appalling kind of Australian border control obsession and, and so on but but you where this 
where I think this would normally be explained in terms of possibly like uh, a, a rich country trying to hold on to its wealth or, or kind of a socio-cultural sort of account of, of the genesis of racism. You, th there's a kind of, there's a kind of pleasing um, flattening to your account where I think by using the category of, of biopolitical imperialism, you, you kind of say what it's actually about is protecting this privileged position of those who have access to the biopolitical care of the state in some ways and yeah. and i think one of the most original parts of the book is the way you talk about this um as something as as something that creates loyalty and national identifications and all of these things like like not to not to the symbol or whatever but to the but but to the sort of pastoral care of the biopolitical state yeah yeah no, that's right so the the this this is this is the point on which my account gets uh, controversial from the point of view of um, the perspective most people on the left have on this, mm. it, and yeah, th this is yeah. I mean, and particularly, I mean, what, what I'm doing here really is is, is um, aligning myself with people who wouldn't want anything to do with what I'm saying because they're the vulgarest Marxists you can meet. Yeah. But but Marxist third worldists, people who yes. who um, the minority tendency in, in Marxism, uh, which has given up on Marx's uh, you know general premise that uh, revolution has to happen in the advanced countries first. Yes. Um, that is that I, you know, I, I, I see the ordinary working class, if uh, you can use that phrase, uh, in the first world countries as co-opted. Yes. Uh, and so I see, I see the exclusion as an action not merely of the state in the name of the population, but of the population. Mm -hmm. Certainly in, in democratic countries, I think this is how, to, how we have to think of it, of course, we have to allow the way the consent is manufactured. We have to allow that um, you know we, we can talk you know about about the preponderant influence of a certain class of the wealthy uh, in forming opinions, in directing things. Absolutely, it's it's not to true. say that everyone is is equal in this. Nevertheless, I think there's a real investment of ordinary people, and you see this. They're vociferous about it. A lot of ordinary people. Yeah, their investment in what in Australia is is called euphemistically border protection. Yes, I, 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 I again, I, I think to some extent what you what you say here is unarguable, and I mean, I think it's not motivated. Uh, maybe this is another advantage of your anti-normative position that the arguments you make are not are not sort of directed at saying, oh well, the 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 white working class should should feel guilty or something like that. But you're kind of saying, look, structurally they're positioned. Right, such that that they have a sort of vested vested interest that leads to them to support these various kind like the continuing exploitation of the periphery or of the or of the global south, despite the weird thing that that term does in relation to in relation to Australia that, that uh, you mentioned at some point in the book that um, and, and and so on. But but to to the sort of to these uh, zones of um, of the greatest of the greatest poverty in the world, like like you talk about like how the, we're talking about places from which. Um, food is exported, right? Um, um, uh, all sorts of things that could could sustain life are exported to countries that have these more um, that have these older and more stable biopolitical frameworks. So, so you know, you, you, I remember you talk at one stage about kind of exporting. Um, uh, uh, quinoa, I think, from Mexico is that Bolivia? It's, it's, uh, for, it's from, from Bolivia. Yeah, yeah, from for to. Um, 
uh, you know, as, as this sort of posh hipster like superfood for, for the West. Right? Yeah, no, this is, this is a real thing, or at least it was widely reported last year. Yeah, the, yeah. the incredible growth in quinoa, which I think everyone's seen. I mean, it's just, it's just everywhere now. They were serving it at a, at a function at my university. Though. Yeah, yeah. Actually, no, that was cheer. But anyway, you do see it everywhere. Um, but the, the this this is the idiotic thing about this is that the one of the great advantages of quinoa is that it's uh, basically a complete protein. It's incredibly nutritious. Yes. Um, and it's a staple uh, for peasants in the Andes. Yes. Who need those nutrients? They can't get them any other way. No. So, uh, but it's now been priced out of um, the. You know, reach of the people who traditionally ate it, who actually needed it, and it's now being consumed by people in the West who already had very varied diets and didn't have any nutrition. Yeah, it's, it's not like it's not like we lack a way to consume calories or protein, right? No. Or, or I mean, the the idiocy of that actually. I mean, it's it's a kind of a bad example, really, of what I'm talking about. Although this is a very interesting paradox I talk about in the book, um, that actually, incredibly, we in the in the West we're killing ourselves through poor nutrition. Yes. Um, so, but. While, but but in but a way that is predicated world, yeah, on I mean, other people dying by taking away that, which by making them unable to afford the crops that they're producing, that would normally be the status yeah. of their diet. But one yeah. thing I do point out in the book is actually that the um, the the commonly advocated uh, antidotes for the poor nutrition yes. of people in the first world and the our obesity epidemic and so on involve an intensification. Of the imperialism, so I mean, quinoa is kind of a case in point. Yes. It's like, no, let's get some healthy food, and we'll bring that from. I mean, let's let's eat more fish, for example. Right? Yes. Or, or this craze for fish oil, which uh, apparently someone was talking at the ACP about. Uh, Thomas Lemke gave his paper. He's talking about Jane Bennett. Jane Bennett apparently is believes in the agency of omega three oils and their <laughs> properties. But but like the only way to get omega three oils is to render down vast amounts of fish. So the idea is like you know if we I mean they, they had this in the in. You know, the, the UK a few years ago, they had schools handing out omega-3 supplements because they thought they'd be more effective than actual education because the omega-3s had such incredible... I mean, this is this has all been kind like, of like scientifically subsequently. But the, the, Increase their brain power. Yeah, sort of absolutely. Like more, more than teaching them will, which is fair <laughs> enough because teaching is probably isn't that great. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the, but, you know, the only way to get that is by, you know, denuding the oceans of fish. Yes. Um, and the people who are really suffering that situation are subsistent fishing communities, which exist solely in the first world, in the third world, rather. Yeah. Um, there's uh, poor people in the third world who who are going to die effectively because of overfishing. Whereas in the first world, we just, you know, I don't know, we'll, we won't have any fish anymore. No, that's <laughs> right. So, or it'll just get more expensive. Right. So, and I actually think that this is a good microcosm of the of the problem that you try and look at, and is it's just places that uh, where a kind of biopolitical regime of of like. It, it's simultaneously the, the governance of the population as, and, as you say, the sort of enhancement of the life of the population, like where there's this, this sort of endless um, need to, to keep enhancing, right, like to solve problems that were caused by the last sense of, the last set of biopolitical controls or the last line of enhancement, i.e. you go, no one has enough food to eat. Wow, we've suddenly got access to all kinds of food. Oh, wait, there's an obesity epidemic or, or anything. But... But things are so structured that the solutions to these problems endemic to the, the, the rich capitalist countries of the world are, like, are constantly being solved by methods that involve doing more damage. So, so as well as importing food, we import, you say, these sort of immigrants with, with degrees and, and, and so forth. And we export, I mean, you essentially say, to put it most brutally at one point, and you say one of the things that we essentially like export in return for that is death. Yeah, that's that's our almost our primary export at yeah. this point. I mean, 
I, I guess there's some others. The, the first world, of course, doesn't produce very much anymore. No. Um, it, are we out offshore? Are we outsourced? Yeah, well, what, we, yeah. what are we export? I mean, you know, our, our foreign earnings, we invest money. Yeah. Uh, we own intellectual copyrights. Yeah. Patents. Um, we, there's a lot of financial services. So yes. if you want to make yes. money in the first world, you have to pay, pay your tax to London. Yeah. Um, and we export uh, machine tools, cars, and weaponry. Yes. Uh, of course, it's the last one that's most clearly associated with, with the death. killing. Um, yes. And that's, that's very popular. Yes, yes, like and, like it's a roaring trade, isn't it? and yeah. it's, also, it's also really the only thing that, other than the intellectual, the intellectual copyright and financial services and the weaponry, are the things that aren't really threatened yet, that that no one else in the world is really making. At least not to the same <laughs> degree. I mean, you could probably get cheap knockoff Kalashnikovs, and they're pretty good for for certain things. But if you want to have a really you know, modern industrialized military, you have to buy your weapons from America or uh, Germany or or the UK or France or Sweden. Uh, the Russians, I guess, have a little bit of uh, kind of leftover potential from the Soviet developments. Uh, I think that's probably dwindling. Yeah, yeah, that was a philosophy can ruin your life um, podcast endorsement of the of the superior weaponry. <laughs> um, but indeed, so so this 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 export of, of that. I mean, it, I mean, one of the things that is so, um, I think. Undeniable, but also also depressing uh, uh, about your book is it just sees this periphery or the third world or whatever like being increasingly uh, uh, squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. Like like the last chapter of the book is about is about war, right? And mm -hmm. and uh, and therefore about and the attempt that on on top of what we're already doing, right? Like so, you export. Um, I, I don't know um, technological uh, computers and things, Apple products or something around around the world, which you know people have to pay exorbitant prices for and so on. And we take and we and it was takes takes the grain, takes the takes the quinoa, takes the staples. You know, well, except except immigrants who are fleeing from the from conditions where there isn't a, a biopolitical regime to support them, where they're likely to starve or it's a war zone. We take those people as well if they've got degrees or they're going to be good engineers into Australia or into. Yeah, we don't just take anyone. I mean, let's be. No, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to take the the average refugee from the third world who remains within the third world just in a neighbouring country. We're going to take the people who have the, uh, you know, ability. Exactly. Say, maximally, if we the most generous the first world ever pretends to be is like if you can reach our borders, we'll let you in, and maybe we'll take a few people through like a scheme where like you know we go to your refugee camp in in Lebanon and we allow a certain proportion of people, but it's. In, but the people, the open, the door is open if you actually like if you if you're a computer professional or something. Yeah, that's right. And especially if you already have resources and capital and and, and so forth. Yep. Whereas actually, this reminds me of one of my favorite things that you say in the book is that when you is when that you point out you point out the distinction between and I think it's particularly um, uh, uh, frequently invoked in the in the uh, rebarbative Australian um, border protection discourse etc but 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 also but also kind of globally like in the first world you you you, you talk about the way you know we will we will give you know and there are United Nations there are international conventions around refugee status right and so um, and of course um, Australia violates those and 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 um, and demonizes refugees such that the term is is used as a kind of pejorative but even so i mean even given that you point out well um 
on the one hand, there, there are all of these international treaties around the treatments of refugees defined as someone who is fleeing a kind of political persecution. But when we say if someone is simply trying to leave uh, a situation where, in your terms, there's a, there's a lack of, of a bio, political regime, so, so that they're starving or whatever, but not being politically persecuted, or they're starving, or they're just sick of a lack of general opportunities in, in, in life, or, and so on, that this is considered a very bad reason to, to migrate that we don't care about at all. Yeah, I mean, you see this in, in Europe now with the, the Syrian refugees who are, I mean, you see this with, with people pretending to be Syrian refugees, which is this, this kind of scandal that the right wing talks about in yeah. Europe. It's like, oh, they're all pretending to be Syrian, and a lot of them are from other places. Because if you're from Syria, then, then you know, the left in Europe, uh, at least, you know, the left plus Angela Merkel, certain yes, constituencies yes, in, in Europe want to allow in Syrian refugees on the basis they're fleeing Syria. But, you know, if you're fleeing somewhere that isn't Syria, I mean, of course, this encompasses all kinds of political persecution that the West doesn't recognise, like Kurds in Turkey, for example. Indeed, uh, indeed. But also, you know, I mean, we'll look at the people trying to get across the Mediterranean from sub-Saharan Africa, the fact that they live in a place that, you know, areas that have been devastated by wars historically, uh, with, to which you can draw all kinds of etiological links to the actions of uh, first world countries. Uh, it doesn't really cut it. You need to be fleeing. Of course, in the end, I mean, cynically, one has to say you have to be fleeing from a war where where there's there's some kind of moral uh, value that the West can place in it by going. I mean, initially, oh dear, you're fleeing from that terrible Bashar al-Assad, and now you're now you're fleeing from the demons ISIS. of the Daesh. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's whereas if you're fleeing from from Turkey, I mean, we we can't compute. That. <laughs> do you go 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 home. No, or if you're just fleeing from the fact that you live in a, a shanty town, or you live, you know, or that. Well, that's right. I mean, that's one thing I say in the book. Fish. It's yeah. not like the danger. There's not an actual danger. There's there's not a it, it, you know the, the danger that that is posed to you by living in in your country is not what's no. concerned. It has to have this this peculiar character defined by the Refugee Convention, which of course is you know can be genealogically understood in the Refugee Conventions. Of course, they were. You know, they're, they're the ancestors of conventions developed to deal with displaced persons after the Second World War. Um, but they're, they're now, I mean, essentially, they've uh, inflated the, the meaning of the Refugee Convention now. I mean, it's a contested thing, right? It's, it's, one, of, it's one of any number of legal influence, which now is a matter of a kind of push and shove between right and left-wing forces over the definition. Mm. This is, a, this is, I think, a very, very good example of the value of of the genealogical pr pr approach, and even of the and even of the critique of normativity that we've talked about. Because I, 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 I think if there's if there's one place where normative discourse reigns maybe at its most pernicious, it's in perniciously it's in relation to, um, I suppose, I suppose the the endless proliferation of of kind of um, ethics. Um, think tanks and, and 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 human rights discourse and people wanting to study international relations like um, I, I teach in places like like I talk to a lot of young people and you ask them what they want to do and that you know they they want to change the world for good and they think the way to do that is you do international relations with ethics get people to uphold human rights and and everything will be fine I think you've just given I'd like to you just say more about this if you could but I think you've just given a great example of of, of the poverty of that and why a genealogy um, of, of such things would be useful yeah 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 do you, um, do, you, do you have anything more to say about about the particular growth of those kind of of, of sort of a, I suppose a, a rapid proliferation because this is something else I think we export as well as death is ethics um, committees <laughs> Well, I don't know. I, 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 have not, I haven't studied that. I don't know whether we're exporting right. ethics committees. I know they're, they're, you know, they're proliferating. But I mean, that's the ethics committees. 
to me, I mean, the ethics committee to me it makes me think of medical ethics, which is a, right. a, a kind of different case. I mean, it's sure. a, a, a case where you know we used to have a religious morality which told people what they could and couldn't do. Now science can do all kinds of things, but we somehow you know need to need to check a box to show that we're aware that there are ethical issues. Indeed, this indeed. nebulous concept which has been secularized nonsensically, and then you have these professional ethicists who come in and, and put a bit of a uh, uh, you know, input into it, and then they they decide how many, you know, uh, I don't know what whatever the cutoff point will be for whatever they're doing, and mm. and uh, then they tick the box and go, well, that's ethical. I mean, this exactly. is how the university ethics committees work as well. Yeah, and uh, I think they they outsource to corporations and 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 so on as and, and so on. Sure. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, maybe maybe um um uh, sort of bringing things to a close, like as a as a kind of uh, last question. I mean, the the last chapter that you talk about. Um, in the book, after printing, printing this, this uh, the, sorry, your last chapter after printing this fairly um, um, devastating, but I think unfortunately rather unarguable picture of the world, is you talk about is you talk a, about about resistance is is the title of your yeah. last chapter. I mean, you kind of know that anyone who who hears your book is going to ask you about that chapter. I suspect reviews of the book are going to are going to focus on to some extent that chapter. So, what do you have to what do you have to say about 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 resistance in in this in this situation? Well, I mean, it, you know, basically, I'm, I'm pretty cautious to make any comment about it. As I've said, I, I, yeah, you know, the reason it's called it's called resistance, you know, because that's the the one thing one can talk about um, by my Foucauldian lights. Indeed, right? we can't. We, it's 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 critical. So I don't, you know, I'm not going to say this is what what you have to do and how to do it. Yeah, it's a matter of just discussing the ways or the prospects for resistance that are out there. I mean, it's worth noting that you know, despite the the, the negativity of the, I mean, in in the in the the picture you painted in terms mm. of it you know, just being a dire situation which just gets worse and worse because of all the bad things that happen. I mean, actually, although lots of, you know, biopolitical imperialism I see has many facets and they're all terrible and they all enforce mm. each other. I mean, actually, um, it's it's not just the... that That's not to say that, in fact, um, it's just a kind of hopeless cycle because... Uh, the third world has its own resources, indeed, uh, and I, I don't obviously that's true in the case of material resources, but they also they have their own resources for developing, uh, for doing things, for political resistance, um, and you know it's it's so in, in many ways things are changing, changing in spite of what I call biopolitical imperialism, but there there is development uh, in the third world of various types. I mean, the most obvious being the the economic. Uh, development of China and also India. Yes, yes. Um, but I mean, I, I try and discuss what I think the prognosis is for those. But uh, one has to be very cautious about this, as I've suggested. Actually, um, it's it's an article of faith for me that we just don't know what's going to happen. And anyone who pretends that they know in economics, politics, or sociology uh, what's going to happen next um, is uh, delusional, or you know. Because we we cannot analyse the situation well enough to predict the next stage, um, so all I've really tried to say is, well, look, there's there's some hope here. Um, mm. That that is, there's some hope of the autonomous development of biopolitics in the third world. Uh, that might not sound that hopeful, but at least that that might um, uh, free some countries from the predation of biopolitical imperialism. Um, and you know, I mean, I, I survey the various tendencies in the world. The um, recent, um, somewhat, uh, searching for an adjective here. Uh, the re I, mean, I was going to talk about the, the um, 
kind of increase in, in left-wing governments in, in Latin America. Right. But, I mean, we, we have to be somewhat cautious about that, the extent to which, I mean, you know, each of those has its own problems. Mm. Uh, it's, it's not really clear to what extent they either can or are able to really um, break with the patterns uh, that are so entrenched. Of, you mean of a kind of vaguely, uh, like, like kind of nominally socialist dictatorship sort of socialism in one country kind of effect, like a kind of, or what do, what do you no, mean? Well, that's, that? okay, that's fine. Okay, I see what you're referring to. Because one thing I do talk about in, in the book uh, are precisely socialist dictatorships, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, if you really want to, I mean, as I say, I mean, if you want to completely resist imperialism, the biopolitical or economic type, I mean, that you could just completely shut your country off, right? Yes. I mean, and we have a... A case of this, or the you know, maximal case of this, would be something like North, North Korea, Korea, which is yeah. clearly, um, you know, not not an example that I imagine many people would <laughs> want to follow. No. Uh, although, I mean, actually, I'm not sure if I even if I do say this in the book, but I've said it in things I've written about it before. One does have to have the caveat that we basically don't have a reliable, uh, reliable reports of what's going on in North Korea, but all the indications are it's pretty terrible. No, that's right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so so you know, presumably this this isn't. I mean, this is this is often said people that right you can't uh, and indeed this is the problem right in a globalized world you can't um just shut yourself off no uh so you know what do you what do you do um and and you know true to form i don't really have an answer to that no i mean yeah you you recuse yourself from prognosticating about such things because as you say like that's that's a that's a methodological axiom it's a it's a, it's a principle for, for for your whole sort of line of thinking but i think you know um, to the extent that you, you do talk about about resistance, I mean, a couple of interesting uh, things that struck me is one is, um, and you kind of intimated this in your last answer. There's an interesting way in which I think in in the resistance chapter there are examples of talking about a kind of biopolitics contra imperialism, right? Like of, mm -hmm. of developing um, um, biopolitical frameworks in these countries that are uh, denied deny them where, where they just they just exist to be exploited for the biopolitical regimes of, of, of other places and you also um, talk about again without much faith without without sort of lyrical Derridian pronouncements about impossible hope via, you know you know um, again you, you're really not into the messianic pathos you're not really a messianic pathos kind of a guy um, um, but these moments of hope which I'll put in uh, I'll put in square quotes, um, you do talk about the fact well, and, and I don't think you go any further than this, that there are um, forms of resistance. There are people in the, in the, in the capitalist West who want to, who, you know, who are prepared, and you, I think you mentioned, as your book advocates, at least nominally, to say, no, we have to um, renounce some of the benefit, benefits of our own sort of biological regimes in the name of not fucking over the rest of the world to the same extent. Well, that's what Martin Luther King Jr. advocated. Um, we should, we should uh, be content to have less. Yeah. Um, I mean, but of course that that does uh, open the door to a certain kind of moralism. It does indeed. Um, yeah, yeah. But look, you know, I don't, I don't really. And that from that point of view, I mean, this goes back to this question of the normativity of the intellectual versus normativity of the movement. Yes. I mean, if 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 people by having a kind of moral yeah. crusade can actually, you know, change change things, then um, 
Yeah, so perhaps that's one possible form of hope. But I, I mean, I, when, when one looks at the, the attempts to invoke morality in this <laughs> heretofore, yeah. I mean, there's this, uh, there's this movement of philosophers inspired by Peter Singer. I mean, not uh, just the yeah. philosophers. You're familiar with these Effective guys? Effective altruism. Yeah, good. good yeah. I've forgotten yeah. the name. Yeah, kill me now. But yeah. I mean, that's... Well, they, but they, they're buying into an entire philosophical discourse yeah. Yeah. which wants to talk about altruism and how to change the world with while making no attempt to analyze yeah why the world is the way it is and that that i mean that's that's their problem i think no i i can't think of it but i actually um for my sins had to teach a, teach a class where the students told me i hadn't been going to the lectures or or the uh, and they said you know that the, their teacher told them that singer's arguments in this point were were indisputable that they were like that one could not argue against them and I, I said to them you know what about the fact of what's the difference and I think this is one of the problems with all kinds of moralism between the the, the, the situation whereby a certain kind of people are always going to be subject to moral imperatives and another class of people are going to be the people for whom the moral imperatives exist right it's it's like it's like no rich white people or whatever give a portion of your income to those poor people but there's nothing about 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 the the sort of real situation that sets up the structure that that one group of people are going to be the subject of the imperative and the other people are supposed to be the benefits of of, of following the imperative this this yes well that's that's a that's an issue too look my, my preference is for some form of Aesthetics is the solution here, which I think. Okay, is also that really surprised me. I, 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 I want this. Uh, I want this on record. Tell me about okay. this aesthetics. Uh, well, no, it's, uh, I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not. Well, you know, this is. This is. Uh, I mean, this has always been. This has always been something. I mean, it's. It, it comes out of Foucault. It's always been something I've kind of thought vaguely about, and it's not something I've really done much work on. Although I'm starting to to think much more intensely about it, but it, it, I mean, it seems to me that. Um, yeah, aesthetics is 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 the the form of thinking that off, offers you a genuinely non-normative mm-hmm. way of proceeding in these situations. That is, um, to adopt a lifestyle, uh, say, to oppose um, a, a, a you know a political situation. So say to adopt a, a lifestyle of lower consumption. Right. To um, ad, you know oppose, oppose imperialism, not because. Uh, you believe you have a norm by which it can be condemned because I, I don't think I genuinely don't mm-hmm. think we can posit that, uh, but rather because you think it's fucking ugly to to do the opposite. Right? Yeah, yeah, or, yeah, or yeah, to the opposite. That's right. Yeah, Not, yeah. Well, I mean, you, we could have a, actually. You know, what do I care? I mean, if you <laughs> you could have a positive aesthetics of ugliness that says, yeah, I'm going to live really. I mean, they, you know, yeah. you look at crusties, but uh, <laughs> I, you know, yeah. I mean, I I, I think. Um, one way or the other, one can one can develop this as a, as an aesthetic, and this is you know the you know a point on which we could go with a certain version of something that Foucault has discovered in antiquity, namely mm. the idea of cultivating one's life as a beautiful thing, mm. um, that that somehow that that there's something aesthetically unpleasing about the situation of the world as it exists now, which is certainly how I feel about things. Certainly. This, this actually, I, I'm really intrigued by this. I, I, I know I said I was going to let you off there, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm really going to say something kind of, I mean, what would you say to, uh, just, just a, a, a sort of thought experiment might, might counter, but that um, 
I, I don't know that that actually maybe particularly you know when, when people speak of, of late capitalism or something like that um, to the uh, or, or post fordism that they often describe it in terms of the difference between a kind of an expectation of um, relatively homogeneous consumption versus a sort of endlessly differentiated consumption right like and that and that I mean perhaps like living in a, a bio a, a biopolitical regime like ours like puts us in a position where people can and do um, pursue all of these kind of aesthetic projects where they where they're kind of you know you know where, where different lifestyles like ways of ways of opting out like it's very it's very post-60s ways of sort of um, distancing oneself from the ugliness of, of sort of capitalism but but it, is that not sort of really rather rather part of the, the system yeah, absolutely. Rather no, this is something we, this is this is you, you absolutely hit the nail on the head here I mean this is absolutely right um, and this is this is kind of yeah I've, I've vacillated my thoughts about this. Right, it's right, absolutely right. clear, right? So I I can I mean this is this is a problem. It doesn't really matter whether it's a moral or aesthetic basis, right? Yeah. It, that this is why one has to think in a in a slightly broader picture, right? If I if my individual lifestyle mm. uh, consists of living you know like minimalist, yeah. uh, low consumption lifestyle, which frankly is is actually what I try and do. Sure. But this this can simply this simply I can simply do this as a component of a, a system in which I buy a certain set of lifestyle magazines or something. Of course I don't actually buy a magazine. No, no, this sure. Is, this is twenty fifteen, but I'm not sure <laughs> how many some people still do. Uh, but you know but there there's certain things that are sold to me as part exactly. of my lifestyle and, exactly. and, and indeed it's absolutely right that by um, I mean the the essential problem and the reason why you can't have a kind of Kantian solution in the sense that we, you know, I, I go, I mean, I'm referring to Kant's ethics here, and I'm referring to Kant's maxim, that we have to act as if our action were providing the universal law. Yeah, yeah. Right? And this is this is the tendency, you go, well, if everyone acted as I did, we wouldn't have a problem anymore. It's kind of pious, I mean, whatever it is, like, let's be vegetarian. Yeah. If only everyone would be a vegetarian yeah. like me, then we'd have solved climate change. That's right. And it, right. it could seem a bit uh, beautiful soul-like in that sense. Well, that's right. Going, Especially yeah, yeah. The, this, yeah. the, the, but the essential problem is, yeah. Right, yeah. Is, mm. the essential problem is that uh, the reason Kent is wrong yeah. that me doing something does not universalize it. Yeah. It does, and it was not only does it not universalize it, it doesn't even push in that direction. Right? If, no. I, if I stop eating meat and start, you know, if I listen to, George Monbiot and like stop eating yeah, meat. Yeah. I mean, or, or even if imagine if you are George Monbiot, right? George <laughs> Monbiot who stops eating meat and then he, he writes his pious articles about how he wanted to stop eating meat. Um, and perhaps he'll influence some people to stop eating meat. The, 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 the problem is the reactivity of human beings in this situation and the sheer unpredictable reactivity. I mean, Foucault talks about reactivity. He says that the problem is that the, the mind is not made of soft wax, it reacts. Yeah, this is yeah. how uh, Marky makes an interview. Okay, uh, that's right, right? And this is this is this is the reason you kind of can't control people, and that's a good thing because they always resist power. Mm -hmm. But it also means that that uh, you, you just don't know. And for me, it's a complexity effect. People's psychology is very complex. Um, you can't predict the way people will go. So if you if you tell people you're a vegetarian, a certain proportion of them like like this this guy what a what a wanker, and then you you end up with a reaction. I'm sure we, we all experience this, right? Definitely. That is by going out. I mean, by going out and and, and you know pushing your agenda. You, yes, you could just get everyone to agree with you, and then you'll have a hegemonic viewpoint. Or you could, in fact, irritate people uh, <laughs> to the point that it actually harms your cause. Yes. Uh, it, it's genuinely ambiguous, yes, which, it is. which which will take place and to what extent. Um, so, 
In, in but, but, sorry. Okay. I mean, in a sense, I, I like aesthetics in, in as far as it might hold out some hope of going beyond this, mm -hmm. in, in as much as it's not proselytizing. Uh, yes. Hmm. Hmm. So okay, I mean, at that level, like when you said aesthetics, like you mentioned, you you, you mentioned your your critique of the of the sort of Kantian morality of universality. But I mean, is something that attracts you? I mean, it's being of Kantian aesthetics. You know, there's that there's that which is central, like which you know famously Arendt sees sees Kant's political philosophies in the in the lectures on aesthetics, and she sees that she says that because she thinks in the moment where you you you're in the realm of of what Kant calls reflective. As opposed to determinate judgment, where you, you're not applying a, a concept to something, you you have to derive a concept for a complicated sort of situation where no concept exists, or a rule, or a sort of heuristic for getting by, and uh, you're not granted, a, um, uh, you're, you're not following a universal maxim. There's no guarantee of universality, but there's something about the the judgment of the beautiful that implies the possibility of universalizability but if and only if and this bit's really important to me in terms of like to avoid the sort of maybe you could call it a sort of ethical narcissism or beautiful soul position that that there can be some kind of census communist that 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 there can be some sort of community of taste or something like that yeah, yeah I mean, look, this is exactly what i'm thinking at the moment right, right, right. Say, this, Sounds is, this is a yeah like a, you know this is at a very formative stage i haven't written anything about this uh -huh. my thinking is very fluid about it but i've been saying for a little while now that, that we really need to use the third critique against the second huh. uh -huh. and that I think this is right there's there's actually a certain universalism yeah. revealed in Kant's account of the aesthetic yeah. that allows us to get out of the pernicious universalism of the, of the second critique yeah um, and the most intriguing project for this although it's a project that that is also very formative is Alison Ross's uh -huh. um, now uh, yeah. and this this as I say is, is utterly formative right she I don't think she's I, I mean I don't think she's advanced very far down this. I don't think she's published anything on it. But this is the, the project for which her future fellowship was funded, namely a project that, um, you know, and I can say this because it's in the public record, because it's government-funded, yeah. uh, that, that we, that in complex situations, which is the problem I'm talking about, the complexity problem, how to deal yes. with other people who are complex systems and deal with complex society, that the only way to deal with, the way to deal with this in the end is that it, because aesthetics isn't based on trying to calculate it. No, no. Um, again, I have no idea whether this actually is really <laughs> going in the right direction, but that's the direction I'm thinking at the moment. Okay, fa fascinating. Um, all right, um, Dr. Mark Kelly, um, um, it's been a real pleasure. Um, um, thank you very much for uh, uh, t appearing on the podcast. Cheers, Brian. Thanks okay, um, you, you've been listening to uh, Philosophy Can Ruin Your Life, um, um, and we've, you've been listening to Dr. Mark Kelly from uh, Western Sydney University. Um, thank you very much. <laughs>